Well, hello. How's everybody doing today? Good. This is a great day, isn't it? It's a good day to be here to worship the Lord. Um, if you're joining us online, I'm so glad that you're joining us. We're a little late getting online. I give Sawyer Trap one week off and nothing works, right? I guess that's how it goes. But so thank you, Sawyer, if you're watching this right now. Make sure when you see Sawyer when he gets back from vacation, say thank you. Um, so we have some technical difficulties. We don't have videos. We don't have slides. But you guys can hear my voice, right? We even have, yeah, we have technology that you can hear my voice, which is more than Jesus had. So we should be pretty happy, right? Okay, well, I'm glad you guys are here. We are starting a new series today, but before we do, I just wanted to say uh, a couple things that are going on in Life Church. Of course, you heard Grant Ryder. We're going to be super sad to see uh, Grant uh, leave staff, but we're so excited about what God is doing there. Um, And also, our name is changing. Our name is changing. I'm sure you guys have heard the news about our neighborhood, Stapleton, the neighborhood formerly known as Stapleton, where we are now the church formerly known as Stapleton Church. So um, in in order to, like, signal, because we are people that value and welcome everyone, Uh, I told in the letter, if you guys got the letter I sent out this week, that uh, one of my... Like fondest memories was a new members class we did a year and a half ago, and there was 15 people coming in, and people from nine different nations were represented in that one class. And I love that our church is made up of people from all sorts of different uh, ethnicities and uh, races and demographics, and that's what we're about as a church. So we're going to change our name. We don't know what it is yet, but if you have suggestions for what our new name should be, go to stapletonchurch.com slash name change. Name change. There's a little form you can fill out and say what the new name you suggest and what you think it should be um, and why you think it should be. And then uh, we're going to take all of those and compile it and then eventually get down to the point where we have a new name. Okay, that's kind of exciting, isn't it? I think this is a great thing. We can kind of rebrand and get, yeah, this is great. Reach some new people. Yeah, I think it's going to be really good. It's going to be really good. So um, we have a short scripture today, so you guys are lucky. Since we don't have the the screens, you guys are going to be just fine. We're just going to be in two verses today. Also, if you're watching online or if you're here in person and you are new, I want to get to know you. We want to connect with you. So take out your phones, because that's how we're doing it all now, right? Take out your phones and text the word NEW to the number 720-707-1757. So that's kind of the number we're using for all our communications. If you want to communicate with us, you can even do it through text. Isn't that pretty cool? So text the word NEW to 720-707-1757. You guys ready for the new series? There's like two people ready for the new series. Are you guys ready for the new series? Put your hands together because I can't hear you through the mass. Okay? Yeah, you guys are going to have to clap a little bit more today. No Ordinary People. No Ordinary People is the name of our series that we're starting today. So yesterday we celebrated as a nation our birthday in a sense when the Declaration of Independence was written, when it was, I guess, formally signed on July 4th. That's what we celebrate. And one of the most famous lines, of course, in that Declaration of Independence is that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Perhaps you memorized that like I did when I was just a kid in elementary school. Those words are foundational to who we are as a nation, that all men are created equal. And it's from that foundational truth that we base so much in our nation, even today, when people are protesting in the streets for justice, for the human rights 
uh, of people like Elijah McClain, who just here in Aurora was killed by police officers. The fact that we can even go to protest to say we believe in human rights, where does that come from? Well, we say it comes from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. But my question is, are they really self-evident? Think about that. We, we just kind of assume that that's true. We assume that it's good to pursue human rights and fight for uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and a whole bunch of other rights that we have enshrined into our laws. Self-evident. But the interesting thing that from a scientific and observational viewpoint, all men are not created equal. No, no, seriously. Let's, let's talk about it for just a second. Um, This is a strange thing that we don't even want to discuss, but yet it is being discussed and taught in schools. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was a Supreme Court justice in our nation and is considered, um, he is the most quoted Supreme Court justice in American history. Listen to the words that he said. Scientifically, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. So why do we even treat humans good, right? Why do we treat each other with dignity and respect? We're just like the baboons. They're like a grain of sand. Uh, I read last year a book, and I don't necessarily recommend it, but it was a New York Times bestseller by an atheist historian. It's called Sapiens because it looks at the history of how humans came to be. And and in this book, um, Yuval Noah Harari looks at that line from the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, and he says, can we actually say that? He says, if you just look scientifically, if we evolved from bacteria and then into deeper life forms and then finally into Homo sapiens, and the Homo sapiens killed off the rest of the hominoids on our planet so that they are the ones who survived, well, do you know how they survived? Because they formed tribes. And the tribes learned to protect themselves and fight off any other tribe that would stand in their way of survival. So according to a scientific and evolutionary point of view, we should kill and fight any other tribe of people that gets in our way of survival, because survival is king in our universe. He even, uh, in his book, rewrote the Declaration of Independence, and this is one line from it. He said that all men evolved differently, that they are born with certain mutable characteristics. We all evolved differently. So if I, as a man, am stronger than a woman, I should survive, right? I should be first. I should be on top. This is what our scientific and evolutionary point of view teaches. And yet you guys are all cringing as I talk about this, right? We know that that's not right. That's misogynistic. That's not treating people with dignity and respect. But why is it that we feel that way? G.K. Chesterton, decades ago, I think summarized this very well when he said... The secular person goes first to a political meeting where he complains the natives are being treated as if they were beasts. Then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings actually are beasts. Right? Do you see the contradictory uh, ideas that are prevailing in our society today that we feel like, okay, well, certain people have survived, so they should be the strongest. They should be the ones to, to take the power and lead, right? And if somebody else is abused or killed, who cares? Survival of the fittest. And yet we know that's wrong in our hearts. We know it deep down. So what is going on and where can we actually say that these truths are self-evident? Well, I'll tell you where it comes from. 
I'll tell you where it comes from. It's not from observation. It's not from science. But it's from this book, right? It comes from this book, and this book tells us about the way that God actually created us to be and why we can, and the Founding Fathers did say, endowed by their Creator, right? And that's what we're going to look at this passage today because it not only provides the foundation for who we are as a nation, the reason why our entire world is fighting for things like human rights and justice for all, But I believe that as individuals, you and me here in this church, and if you're watching online, it's for all of us, it should change how we interact with every single person we meet. So I'm going to look at these verses. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Some of you brought your Bibles. You have your phones. You can look at our YouVersion event. That's where all those lyrics are as well. And in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Here, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, You know that God is creating the entire universe. Day after day after day, He adds one thing, then the next. The sun, the moon, He creates the waters, He creates plant life, He creates animal life. And then here, as the very last act of creation, on the final day of creating, it's not the rings of Saturn, or even our sun, it's not our dogs, or a beautiful stallion. No, it is human beings that is the climax of everything that God created. And it's with human beings alone that God says, I have created you in the image of me. This is a special, unique act. With everything else, he spoke and they were created. But with human beings, there is something special in the way that he has created every single human being. In his image, in his likeness. Now, this should be so interesting to us and so fascinating stuff and, to us, and we should stop and ask, well, what does that image actually mean? Because it's, like I said, not the animals. It's not even the angels. Have you thought about that? It's not even the angels that are created in His image, only human beings. So there's something special and unique in the way that God created us and why we think that we have human rights. So what is it? Well, a lot of people on their first reading of that think in English, well, image and likeness, does that mean that we look like God? Is there something about, you know, our our face, our hands, the, the way we walk upright? Is that what it means to be in the image of God? There was a, a young girl in Sunday school class, and she was drawing with some crayons, and the Sunday school teacher walked over and asked this little girl, so, so what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher, seizing the teachable moment, that's what you're supposed to do with kids, right? Said, you know, nobody knows what God looks like. To which the little girl responds, well, they will in about two minutes. But the, the reality is the Bible tells us that God is spirit. It even says that he is invisible. It's interesting, in the top... No graven image. You shall not make any image or likeness of me, period. 
Interesting, right? God is invisible. You cannot make an image. You cannot make a statue that looks like him because he's invisible. So therefore, we know from reading the rest of the Bible, well, it's not actually a physical appearance that means that human beings are in the image of God. So a lot of people take that and they want to move a little bit differently. So they look and try to compare humans to the animals or humans to other uh, like plant life. And they say, well, what sets humans apart? That must be what the image of God is, right? I think logically this makes sense that people say, well, maybe it's the human consciousness that we're aware of ourselves. Maybe it's our higher intelligence. Sure, dolphins are smart, but not that smart. Okay? Maybe it's the fact that we can communicate complex ideas to each other. Maybe it's our ability to have relationships with other people. A lot of people have taken these different characteristics and said, maybe it's this. But actually, that logically does break down at some point. Because what about the human beings that don't have higher intelligence? <laughs> and I'm not talking about that rude neighbor you have. I'm talking about people that are born with mental deficiencies. Does that mean they are not made in the image of God? If they cannot communicate with complex sentences, does that mean they're not a human being? See, what, what you're supposed to do when you're trying to interpret the Bible is actually look at what the Bible says, okay, instead of like jumping out, outside of it. And what's fascinating when you look at this verse, you see those words image and likeness, image and likeness. And they're actually words that are used other places in the Bible, and they were used in the ancient world. So the words image and likeness were actually most used when a king would conquer a nation, an emperor, for example, and he would want to show that he has power there. He would create a statue in his image to represent himself there. Say, I, I own this. In fact, when Jesus picks up that coin, you know, there's this debate in Jesus' day about um, who, how you should be paying taxes or should they be paying taxes. He said, whose image is on this coin, right? Whose image? And whose is it? Caesar's. So... Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. Because Caesar's coin is there because he, as the emperor, ruled the empire, all these different nations. It was his representation there. So in the same way, what God is saying is that I am creating human beings uniquely as my representatives. They and they alone will represent me on this earth. It even is actually spelled out in this passage when you look at why he goes on to say this. He says, so that they may rule, right? So that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So all the other creatures, you will rule over them. That word image and likeness was even used in the ancient Middle East in places like Egypt and Mesopotamia because the king would be the image of the god. Whatever the God was for those different cultures, the king represented him. And that's why the king could rule. But the Bible doesn't say the king is the sole representative of God on the planet. What does it say? Every single human being, male and female, who has ever lived are the kings and the queens of this planet. They are ruling and reigning in my place on this planet. That's what God is saying here at the beginning. That's fascinating, right? So that means when we look at each other, we're seeing royalty. <laughs> Who cares about Duchess Kate, Meghan Markle? You guys are surrounded by royalty today. Look, look around at each other. If you're watching online, look at the person next to you. That's a king. That's a queen. That's a prince. That's a princess ruling on this earth as a representative for God. 
Now, this is a, a powerful concept if we were actually to see the other people around us as God wants us to see them. You know that feeling you get when you're around a famous person? You know what I'm talking about? That feeling you get around a famous person. Sometimes we even just glimpse, oh my gosh, if, if Peyton Manning walked in here right now, what would everybody be doing? I can tell you what, they would not be listening to me. Okay? You guys would all look. You'd want to get his autograph. You'd want to take a selfie with him. Maybe if you were like, I don't care. Well, well, who's the person that you do care about? Is it the president? Is it the last president? <laughs> Think about that famous person in your mind. Maybe it is <laughs> Duchess Kate or Meghan Markle. Okay? You want to get a selfie with them. You want to see them. You kind of have this feeling inside like, oh my gosh, you're kind of giddy. Have you ever felt that? Anybody in here felt that when they've been around a famous person? Okay, this is like minor down there, but this I think illustrates the point. Uh, one of my, my new neighbors in my courtyard used to play Major League Baseball. He only pitched for two years, but I'm like, wow. You know? and, and one day he was playing catch with a couple guys in the courtyard, and he said, hey, Matt, you want to come out here and play catch? I felt like a little kid. Okay? Oh, if you would have told me when I was seven that I'd be playing catch with some major leaguers, I'd have been like, yeah, I made it, right? <laughs> Felt like a little kid again. Why is it that when we're around people, even like minor celebrities or people that were just in the major league, we, we feel that way around people. In reality, we should feel that way about every single person we meet. It's not that we should stop viewing those people well. We should view everybody like that. That we're around royalty, and if you're wondering, well, why should we value people that highly? Well, it's something in the way God created us. The way God created us. Have you ever noticed that art has value because of the artist? Okay, nobody's paying millions of dollars for my art, right? Or my daughter's art that we hang up on the fridge. We love it, right? You guys aren't paying for it. Did anybody go to the Monet exhibit when it was here in Denver? We went back in January, which feels like decades ago. Um, but we went, I was trying to think, I was like, when, was that like a few years ago? Yeah, it was January. Went to the Monet exhibit. And Monet, of course, is the impressionistic, great, beautiful art. People love it. And what's fascinating about Monet is that he would uh, paint the same object or the same scene over and over and over again. He would go at different times a day to see the sunlight touching an object a different way. Or he would um, come at different seasons of the year. One of the objects that he painted the most was a haystack, right? Just a haystack. There are some 30 different paintings of this haystack that Monet has painted. What's really interesting, so there's 30 of them. One of the things people say about uh, rare art is that it's rare and that's why it's valuable. But there's 30 of these haystack paintings. One of them sold last year, guess for how much? $110 million. $110 million. That's probably more money than every single one of us today will have, that are here today will have in our lifetimes combined. <laughs> right? Okay, $110 million. That is a ton of money. $110 million. And if somebody has more than that, feel free to fix our roof. Okay, raise the roof fund, <laughs> support, grant. $110 million for a painting of a haystack, and there's 29 like it. Why is it valuable, though? Because of the artists who created it. We look at Monet and we say, wow. And, and people collectively have said, that is beautifully, uh, beautiful, even objectively. So there must be value about his art. And if we see it, even if we've never seen the painting before, it has value in it. In the same way, God, the greatest artist of all time, has created each one of us uniquely and beautifully in his image. 
even greater than the rings of Saturn or the elephant's tusks or the sun that can, that can burn at 15 million, or I'm sorry, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? God says you are more valuable than that. And if he's the great artist, that means every single human being has that kind of value. Amen. Amen. That's how God created us. And I think it's fascinating that God, even when he wanted to show himself to us in the most fullest form, full of his glory, do you know what form he chose? Not the sun. Not a wild stallion. Not a lion. God chose a human being, right? There's something special about each human being. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. There's something powerful about us. There's a great poem that says, Under our noses, before our eyes, not in the clouds, not in the sky, he passes and we pass him by. Humanity is his disguise. It works too well. See, I think too often we miss that every single person around us is made in the image of God. You could probably translate that phrase in Hebrew more accurately to humans are created as the image of God. So that means when we see other people, we, in a sense, see in a profound way God himself. Each human being. So what I want to challenge you to do today, because this doctrine, it's, it's often called the image of God or the imago Dei from the Latin that this doctrine is going to be the foundation for the four-week series we're going to be doing throughout this hot July back here in the sun. But this is so important because we need to stop seeing people as just an ordinary person or even treating our dogs better than we treat our people. Right? Have you seen that? See, we need to start seeing the extraordinary in every person. We need to see the extraordinary in every person because there are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. And that's why I started out by saying, scientifically speaking, human beings, you know, we're just animals. It should be survival of the fittest. Who cares if one dies or a hundred dies or a whole clan dies? But we know that's not true because of something that the way God created us and this concept, this imago Dei has birthed it. This is fascinating. A, A French philosopher who's an atheist, he's an atheist, right? Luke Ferry. He says that Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time, and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. Even the atheists know that the reason why we can talk about human rights is because of Christianity and in turn Judaism before it, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created us in his image. It's even the reason why we had people marching for civil rights in the 1960s. There's a great book that came out just a few years ago that traces back the civil rights movement in the 60s, the nonviolent civil rights movement, to this doctrine, the doctrine of the image of God. And there's a famous sermon, you can read it, called The The American Dream by Martin Luther King Jr. He gave on July 4th, 1965. Incredible sermon. I'd recommend listening to it two years after he gave his I Have a Dream speech. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said, there are no gradations in the image of God. It's not like one person has more image than another person, right? He says, every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. 
One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. He was pushed forward by this doctrine. The fact that we can talk about civil rights and human rights and fighting for justice and, and treating people with dignity and respect is because of the image of God that God created us that comes from this passage. That's a powerful thing, right? It's why William Wilberforce was the force, a Christian, he was the force to end slavery in Great Britain. Many of the abolitionists in our own country were Christians. They fought for the rights of other people. In apartheid South Africa, it was Christians who often led the way. And I think it's sad that we have forgotten this. But this is our heritage as Christians. We fight for the dignity and worth of every human being and we treat everyone we meet as royalty. So because this doctrine is so important, I want to draw it a little bit further, and I'm going to give you three applications today, okay? I could give you 100,000 from this, right? Think about every single interaction we've ever had with human beings. But the Bible gives us kind of three very clear applications if you chase this doctrine throughout the Scriptures. And once again, it's not exhaustive, but I want to just talk about three things that you and I can leave here today doing differently. Got this? The first one is to speak life. To speak life. This should change the way we talk and interact and communicate with other people. In James, Jesus' brother, in James 3, 9, and 10, we read, We use our tongue to praise God, our Father, and then turn around and curse a person who was made in the very image of God. My brothers and sisters, this should never be. So James wrote, How could you talk to someone and, and praise God? We're here Sunday morning, we're praising God with our tongues, and then we curse another human person? We, we bring them down because of the words we say. And, and I think this applies more than just our tongue. I, I think sometimes it's the tongue of our fingertips, right? On our phone or on our keyboards. Man, social media is a nasty place. You know, we often use the joke like you kiss your mother with those lips. But you praise God with those lips and then you say that. Okay, it's one thing to support a political idea, but it's another thing to rip people to shreds because they disagree with you. But isn't that what we're seeing again and again today? But if we believe people are made in the image of God, we should speak life to others. We should write life. We should communicate life to other people to build them up, to bring them life, not to bring them down and send them to death. We build each other up. We encourage each other. We must speak life. The second thing, we must protect life. We must protect life. In Genesis 9-6, just a few chapters later, we read, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind. So this is saying after the fall, and that's important, after the fall, after people have sinned, if you murder another human being, you are murdering a human being made in God's image and you deserve punishment because of it. We must instead preserve life if we're taking it in the positive, right? From that very concept, we must preserve life. We must fight for life. We must do whatever we can to protect the lives of others around us. And, and rightly so, the, the talk of our day is about the justice for people that are being killed in police custody, right? We talked about this several weeks ago. It's all over the nose. We, we know it, right? And, and rightly so, we should fight for the justice of people that are not given due process, right? That's a human right. Due process to at least be judged fairly by your peers, But I did some digging into the statistics of it. I just want to talk about this. This is important. 
There were 999 individuals who were killed in police custody last year in our country. It's almost 1,000 people. That's sad, right? People that died without due process. 235 of those were black, meaning 24%. And 13% of the American population is black. Uh, that's not right. That's an injustice, right? I think we can see that. And people right now are fighting for that, marching for that, here in Aurora, here in Denver. But there's another statistic that I think people are, are not seeing. There's a racial injustice that's happening because it actually affects 36% of just the black population, meaning that black Americans are more likely to suffer at, a, at five-fold to white Americans. Do you know what injustice I'm talking about? Abortion. There were we're on pace this year to see 200 black deaths because of police this year. That's what we're on pace to see this year. 200 men, women, children made in the image of God. We're also on pace to see 200,000 black children killed by abortion. That's a hundredfold more. And we don't talk about it. Since 1972, there have been some over 50 million lives lost due to abortion in our country. That means statistically that 15 million black men and women are not living today because of that. So think about, could this be, you know, artists like Beyonce? Could it be athletes like LeBron James and Tiger Woods and Serena Williams? Maybe it's uh, Barack or Michelle Obama or Martin Luther King Jr. that we are missing today because of that. If you're thinking, well, Matt, you're getting very political today. No, I'm getting biblical. Because we are all made in the image of God. And we like to say, well, when does life start? And isn't it a gray area? But the Bible actually tells us when life starts. Because in Psalm 139, we read as David writes, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together when? In my mother's womb. When does God do the making where people are endowed with the image of God? In the mother's womb. And if you're thinking, well, is that after the heartbeat or before? He goes on to write in verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before the body is formed, in the womb, life begins. So that's why I'm talking about this today. When we talk about this concept of the image of God, I just had to talk about it. Because this is a civil rights issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a biblical issue. And we as human beings, as Christians, must do whatever we can to protect life. To protect life. And the third thing that we must do, the third application from this passage, from this concept of the image of God, is that we must redeem life. Redeem life. You know, there was a fall, there was sin that impacted people, that we have physical defects, mental defects, emotional defects now, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet Jesus, God's own son, came down in human form, born as a human being, to look just like us. And he went, and he loved us, and he served us, and still he was dealt with an injustice, as his life was taken from him without due process. That's what happened to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But he did that in order to show us how God can redeem all of humanity. Okay? It says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that 
Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact representation of God. Jesus, when all of us have failed to truly represent God like we should, right? Let's be honest. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He lived a perfect life and he was killed anyways. But on the third day, he rose from the dead so that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus can be redeemed, can be forgiven, that all the sin that they, create, that they have done by speaking words that hurt other people, by acting in ways that hurt other people, by um, committing injustices, by even committing abortions. God loves those people and cares about them so much. He says, I forgive you and I want to redeem you. You are my child. I have created you in my image. I love you and I want to redeem you and restore you. That's the incredible good news of Christianity, that all of us stand sinful before God. And yet Jesus, the exact true representation of God, came to redeem us. And like it says in Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We will become that full image of God, the full image of Jesus Christ. If we put our faith in Jesus, every single one of us can be redeemed. And we have that message to bring to the world. Now that's a good message. That's the best news you will ever hear. And we get to proclaim that. So that's why the third thing we must do is to redeem life. C.S. Lewis, in the quote that I'm basing this entire series on, it's from his uh, essay, The, The Weight of Glory. He says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, Marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So we talk about redeeming life because every single human being will live for eternity. Either in separation from God, because they have chosen that. They've chosen separation from God. Or because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they can spend eternity in the joy and the pleasures that come with Jesus in eternity. Everyone we see is immortals. Everyone we see is royalty. We have a chance to redeem life and we have the message. That is good news and that's why this doctrine of Imago Dei, the image of God, is so important to us. And that's why when you see the Amazon delivery man come up, he is made in the image of God. When you are rudely told by someone that you should be wearing a mask... That person was created in the image of God. When, when the kids down the street are still blowing off fireworks at 2 in the morning tomorrow, or I guess, right? They're made in the image of God. It's, it's the custodian and the CEO. It's the person that works at King Supers and the person who owns King Supers. We're all made in the image of God. It's the politician, politician who you can't stand because of the mask order that's in place. It's also the politician that you love and are supporting and are going to vote for this fall. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Do we see him like that? Do we see the extraordinary person? The extraordinary image of God made in everyone. And and that's what I want to leave you with today. See the extraordinary in every person. Because every person was created in the image of an extraordinary God. Let's pray. Um, Lord God... um, I pray that this message will change the way we interact with each other. That it would help us live out uh, what you've called us to. This doctrine, Lord God, I pray that it would be infused in our souls. uh, That we would learn to treat everyone with dignity and respect, with kindness. From the little child to, to to the person with Down syndrome. 
that the stay-at-home mom and the person we just can't stand, Lord God, I pray that we would learn to love them, to treat them with respect because they are created in your image and they are special. They are royalty. And Lord God, would we bring that message of redemption so more and more people would not only experience eternal life, but that they would experience that forever reigning in heaven with you. Use us, Lord, to change the world. Amen.